Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacevic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It is my pleasure to welcome back Paul Douse to the podcast. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks, James. Great to be back. Well, it's great having you back on again, Paul. And for those that may not be familiar with your background, you are the founder and managing director of CO Asset Management, and you're also on the board of directors at PMAC. Prior to that, you have tremendous experience in the energy and power generation sectors. Although a super brief intro, what can you tell us about yourself? Well, I've had a wide variety of experience, um, kind of done everything uh, one can do in a plant environment, uh, particularly, you know, uh, various forms of plant engineering. Um, so maintenance engineering, reliability engineering, project engineering. Um, a lot of my experience has been reliability-based. Uh, some of it is principal reliability engineer. Um, I've done asset investment planning. Um, and, you know, right now, kind of uh, most of my experience has been maintenance and reliability, but my focus right now is a bit more on holistic asset management and, and asset management that's uh, more strategic in nature. All right. Excellent. You know, I know a lot of people and organizations are looking to make that transition. Um, but before we dive into it, you know, how long have you been involved in all this maintenance, reliability and asset management? You know, we mentioned tremendous experience, but you know, how long have you been doing all this stuff? I've been doing it for um, well over 25 years. Um, I'm, I'm learning to not say the real number because um, you get to a point where people uh, think maybe you your experiences, you get long in the tooth and you can't learn new tricks, but that doesn't describe me at all. Um, so yeah, well over 25 years of uh, practical experience. And, you know, I must say that while my own experience has been invaluable, it wasn't really until I kind of went out of my own organization and started attending conferences and really developing my network, um, not just locally, but around the whole world. And, and some of that's been through PMAC that I really started learning from others. And, um, you know, my, my learning, I, I consider myself a lifelong learner and, um, you know, um, especially in the last couple of years, um, since, you know, most of my experience was as an employee, being a consultant um, is its own uh, special challenge and reward. And so I'm learning new tricks uh, all the time. All right. Excellent. Now, as we make that journey from, you know, focused on maintenance and reliability to holistic asset management, you know, there's a lot of things that come with that. Um, different ways about thinking about how we maintain assets, different ways about thinking or different ways we think about designing and acquiring these things. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about was life cycle costing. Um, Cause that is one of those things that, you know, people talk about, they mention, but you know, only those who are really moving down their journey are really doing well. So what is life cycle costing? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's, it's an important topic because, you know, it's one of those practices in, you know, um, within, asset management and its 39 subject areas that 
every organization does, right? But what I found is many of them don't do it well. Um, some of them seem to be satisfied with that, but you know, there's there's a lot of mediocrity out there. And you know, life cycle costing, at least the way I define it, it's doing the right things for the asset so it can perform at its, um, you know, what the owner needs it to do over its entire life cycle, right? So, you know, simply put, it's a systematic practice of making the best run, repair, and replacement decisions across that life cycle. All right, excellent. Now, why do we want to use this then? I know you mentioned, you know, optimize costs, that type of thing, make sure the assets can operate like we want it to. But why do we really want to do this? Why can't we just, you know, pick something off the shelf from a vendor and use that and not worry about it? Well, if you're talking about new assets, you know, that's a great opportunity because the decisions you make um, when you're adding new assets, whether that's a whole plant or, or adding a new asset to a manufacturing facility or whatnot, you know, those decisions that are made early on lock in about 85% of the total lifecycle costs. So it's important to get those decisions right and to have the right considerations. Now, the other interesting thing is, so I, I get my, my previous statement kind of says that that initial, let's call it capital investment, you know, kind of sets the stage and casts things in stone. And that's true. But especially when it comes to, you know, larger plants of assets, the total investment of both CapEx and OpEx, so Totex, if you want to use that term, across the entire life cycle is made up of 80% of that is in the O&M phase, which would include things like your routine maintenance and your um, uh, sustaining capital, for example. So that's, you know, capital to keep your existing assets uh, running at, uh, you know, the desired performance and, and, and lowest cost. So, you know, it's important to not only make good decisions on that initial capital investment, but to make ongoing um, decisions for run, repair and replacement um, across, you know, during the O&M phase. All right. Excellent. So we really want to optimize those costs, you know, try and minimize some of those O&M phase costs that we have. Now, this sounds good, but how do we really determine the life cycle cost? Is it a bit of voodoo magic? Is there, you know, some engineering behind it? How do we do that? Well, I think the the you know, there, I like to talk in terms of practice maturity in terms of good, better, or best, right? So I don't think, you know, many organizations, you know, go out of their way to target a practice that's anything less than good practice, right? Um, that said, and and you know, life cycle costing is definitely one of these practices that I consider, you know, there's good, better and best and it pays to go straight to best. Right. Um, and this is also, if I could be more bold, this is one of those practices where, you know, it should be a step change to best. Um, there's no point in incrementing, uh, as you go. So, um, I think, you know, the, the objective of life cycle cost, as you said, is to optimize our decisions, but we have to be careful. Um, optimize is one of those words that's used a lot and it requires context. So, you know, optimizing for what? And, you know, that could be whatever variables um, that you are optimizing for could be, could be cost you know, as expressed as a net present value over the life cycle. Um, timing is also important. You know, what I find is, sure, we'd love to do NPV over, a, you know, a long project life cycle or asset life cycle like, 
you know, decades. But honestly, some organizations, many organizations, their decisions are made on a much shorter basis. Now, you can argue whether that's the right thing to do or wrong thing to do. But the, the point is, you need to do it in such a way that you're optimizing over what is important for the organization. So, you know, in, in terms of how you go about do that, you mentioned kind of art versus science. Um, I think the art piece, you know, the, maybe why, the reasons why we might think of it as an art, it's because people don't intuitively, they aren't good at understanding and certainly managing uh, uncertainty, right? So, so that voodoo stuff is really just acknowledging that, look, we're, we're making decisions here under conditions of uncertainty and in some cases complexity. Right. So, you know, that's that's where the art comes from. But, you know, as you'll see, hopefully the, the methods I promote are, are very, you know, structured and, you know, scientific. So um, with some engineering operations, maintenance basis behind them. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it should be if you do it right, it's it should be more. um more of a scientific approach than um, than art. So you know, some math is required. But the the great thing about the methods I I um, promote uh, is that look, they can be done. Um, you know, even though there is some math, and you know, the fact that there's uncertainty and um, complexity isn't that doesn't mean that's an excuse not to do that because most you'll see most of most of what many companies and practitioners do is used um, you know single point estimates right and while that's easy that can introduce you know it's very limited it's very one one dimensional and um, if you want to make good or better more better decisions uh, it pays to put a little bit more effort uh, into the way you do it. Now, that doesn't mean you need to spend any more time and effort or, or uh, resources or money. Um, it just results in a better quality decision. And, um, you know, you don't need to make, like, because you're making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, not every one of your decisions is going to work out. Um, but if you, if you use these methods, you'll make more better decisions. And in some, because you're making, you know, hundreds perhaps of these types of decisions each and every year um you know over time that adds up and that can result in a significant uptick on your overall uh performance of the organization all right excellent so you know if there is some art but we want to move more of it towards science we want to take into account all the different variables and issues that we may encounter over the life of that asset and I'm glad you mentioned it was more scientific than art-based. We want to make sure that, you know, we 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 have a repeatable process that we can verify the results, validate the assumptions, those types of things. Now, in order to do this, I'm assuming we need some sort of process to perform a life cycle costing analysis, correct? Yes, um, but I don't think that process needs to be, um, you know, uh, very, very expansive. Um, you know, I've noticed that, you know, there's a tendency to, um, 
I guess I'll, I'll, I'll answer this in a couple different ways uh, from first from a process perspective. So, you know, yes, there's certain ways to go about doing this that are better than others and you can write them down, but it doesn't have to be, you know, a long drawn out series of standards and procedures and whatnot. Um, there's, there's kind of some tools that you can use. Um, and then there's what good looks like. Right. So, um, but having said that in terms of process, you know, I think this all starts with good, um, solid problem solving and decision-making and that process, I think we already discussed in a previous, uh, podcast, um, where I talked about using the A3 format of problem solving and decision-making. So, so in terms of what it looks and feels like at the end of the day, you can still use that A3 format, but of course, in this case of making the life cycle analysis and, and the decisions, um, and the fact that there's math, there, there is a bit of, um, you know, artifacts behind that and that's the tools. So, you know, the, the tools that I learned, um, and I still apply today, I learned over 15 years ago. And, you know, there's a book um, that was published by ASME International. It's called Risk-Based Methods for Equipment Life Management. And, you know, that's where I learned first how to kind of use these methods. And it does use a probabilistic modeling method. But the nice thing about it is it's specifically tailored for, you know, industrial run, repair, replacement decisions. And within there, it's got these diagrams called influence diagrams that kind of show you all the inputs and assumptions and constraints and, of course, outputs um, that you'll do that. And, and you can do these just, you know, in a variety of different tools. Could be Excel, could be um, something um, a little bit uh, more than that. But, you know, for most intents and purposes, you know, Excel can just work just fine. Um, but there is a way of going through that, right? So it could be time ordered. Um, and again, you need to be careful and, and deliberate. Um, and intentional about, you know, how you choose to define your problem and how you choose to go about assessing the uh, life cycle costs. So, you know, the fact that all of this is probabilistic, um, you know, can can actually answer a few things that single point estimate inputs and outputs can't do. So it allows you to do, I'll use the word sensitivities, because you can have, you end up with a range of inputs resulting in a range of outputs. You can actually assess the sensitivities to understand um, your confidence in whether or not you're making the right decision or, you know, how much do the, do the variables need to change before you'd come up with a different answer, before you come up with a different decision, you know, um, especially if you're assessing different alternatives, right? So anyway, these methods are very, very powerful. Um, yet, uh, oh, the other, the other part of that is, you know, the, the, the data and the information and knowledge that comes out of these actually shows you which variables are more important than others. And it can actually answer questions like, where would it make sense to spend more money to in, invest to reduce the uncertainty of a certain variable? So, you know, in a, in a maintenance um, 
um, world, you you may say, hey, if we got if we wanted to do more more inspections to understand the health and condition of an asset, that's an incremental cost. But it would, what it would do is reduce our uncertainty about a particular variable. And certainly if that variable has an impact, a substantial impact on the outcome and the decision, you may want to do that. And it can actually tell you how much it might be worth to spend on that. So kind of a maximum upper bound. So, you know, these, these methods, once, once you learn the competency, and it's not that hard, but look, it is a competency that needs to be learned and people need to be able to not just learn these, but actually be calibrated to assess properly all these conditions of uncertainty. And um, what I've learned is it is very much worth learning the right way to do things because, you know, then we can actually support our organizations to make more better decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we need a process, but it doesn't have to be onerous. But the key there is knowing the tools, knowing how to use those tools and making sure we apply them properly. Now, who is really responsible for doing that? Is it the project manager? Is it a reliability engineer? Who generally is responsible for doing that life cycle costing analysis? Yeah, I would say, I mean, there's certainly a practitioner role to actually do the analysis and that could be made up by one or more of, you know, technical subject matter experts. Um, and these people should be qualified to do this type of work and, and be experienced with it. There's a competency, as I said, that needs to be um, acquired to use these quantitative tools and techniques. Um, you know, so that's kind of managing some of the inputs and actually doing the analysis itself. There, there's definitely a role for the decision makers as well, not just to kind of bless the recommended outcome, but to actually perform uh, a bit of a quality assurance on what inputs and the uncertainties around those inputs went in there. And, and one, one great example of that is, look, you can't make a risk-based decision without understanding your your tolerance for risk. If it's just one project or a collection of projects, I think we're restricting our conversation here to just one project. So the 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 subject matter expert, the technical person, you know, can't and shouldn't necessarily set that tolerance. Leadership needs to set that tolerance based on on you know the evaluated uh, risk that the and appetite that the that the uh, company is willing to take on. And so, you know, that's one area where the leader needs to have some input into the model specifically. Um, but there's also others. So, you know, I would say, you know, probably 80% of the work needs to happen by, by you know, competent um, subject matter experts and another 20% by leadership. And of course, this can be done sometimes as a team. It depends on the nature of, of the of the um, life cycle cost analysis. So kind of your boundary and, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, a mechanical discipline versus multidisciplined, um, it kind of depends on the, on how you draw the boundary around the problem. But, um, you know, that's how I would characterize kind of who performs the life cycle cost analysis. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.iridicio.com. All right, excellent. Now, you know, I'm glad you said it wasn't just one person. I think we need that 
leadership input. We might need those other subject matter experts. Now, it sounds like to do this, it requires a little bit of resources. So when should we invest our time in doing a life cycle cost analysis? Is it with every change on every piece of equipment? Is it when we're just comparing repair versus replace, um, evaluating alternatives when we replace or install an asset? When do we do this? I, maybe, you know, when do you do this? I think you can t- take a look at that at, at two ways. You know, the first is is probably you want this done on all your critical assets that you know make up a good chunk of, of your, you know, your overall spend that can have a major impact on your, you know, um, reliability performance and could represent a good chunk of the risk that you might be carrying, right? So that's kind of the first way to look at it. And the second way that we can think about this is, you know, the stuff that comes up. Um, Now, first, I I recommend a systematic method of going out and finding the problems and risks that you care about managing. But having said that, you know, if you have a, a risk that, you know, is a high spend to actually solve the problem, meaning a a large investment. You know, our organizations, you you know, on our on our sustaining capital as an example, you know, you'll have a constraint that the organization has and and you may have more projects than you maybe you can fund, but the point is that, you know, if you can't solve these problems within kind of your routine maintenance opex and and the solution to this problem needs to compete for resources, you know, say in a sustaining capital fund. If it's that significant, then, you know, that's another way that you obviously need to do a more formal life cycle cost analysis on, on those types of problems. So, so one's kind of top down, the other one's kind of ground up. All right. Excellent. So, you know, there's two different times we're going to do those. Now, where do we get the data for these life cycle cost analysis? You know, we got risk profiles. We might have costing that we got to come up with. Where do we get all this data to do these analysis? Well, what I've learned, and and I, you know, I I've got a long, uh, a lot of experience as a technical person, and you know, I've changed my mind on this quite a bit. Um, you know, I was one of the people who thought that oh, we don't have all the data, or it's not complete, or we don't have confidence in it. And and what I've learned is that to do these types of assessments, you actually have more data. Um, and information and knowledge than you think you have. And, and when I say data, I, I could mean, you know, both kind of data um, in terms of measurements, um, but also there's a type of data that's kind of experiential, right, that your subject matter experts might have. So eliciting that um, subject matter expertise um, is also a form of data and information and, and knowledge. Um, so you kind of have two sources there. But, you know, the point I was making is you have more data and information and knowledge than you think you have. And the second one is actually maybe more important. You don't need necessarily a lot to do this. So I, you should not feel like, you know, this type of analysis, um, you shouldn't do it because you don't think you have enough data because that is very often not true. And as I said earlier, you know, you can let the analysis guide you as to, you know, where you think 
but actually it will show you when you have enough data and it will actually show you um, if you need to get more data, whether it's worth doing that. So, you know, the analysis that I promote is actually a two-pass method where the first is kind of a quick and dirty where you do it with, you know, your expert opinion, knowledge, and whatever data you have at arm's length, which means the stuff that you can gather up quickly. Um, so you don't have to paralyze yourself because you don't have to have all the data. And again, the analysis can tell you where it's worth getting more data. And that would be the second pass um, of doing the analysis where you've refined some of your inputs. And you've kind of, um, you know, if you think of the variability of, of any input as a distribution of some type, really what you're doing um, in these cases is shrinking the variance uh, on those on that distribution so that it's tighter and more certain. And so um, as a result, you're tightening the uncertainty of your analysis of a whole. Of a whole. But to my surprise, there's, there's only a few variables typically in, in every given model that are actually, um, you know, that it pays to actually go get more information. Most of the time, most of the... Um, most of the variables you you have everything that you need to make a good decision all right excellent so you know we do that first pass you know identify where we need to dive deeper for more data and then we take that second pass focused on those key areas with data correct yes excellent so you know it allows us to really focus our efforts where they need to be now you know i've heard from organizations that they do these life cycle costing analysis and sometimes it tells us that we need to spend a little bit more upfront to reduce our overall life cycle cost, uh, you know, reduce that O&M phase. But how do we get managers or organizations to think about that and recognize that, yeah, there's a bit more upfront price, but long term, it's going to make a significant difference, especially, you know, when most leaders and organizations are measuring short term performance. Mm. Again, I would answer that in two different ways. So, you know, the one is kind of the leader as a person and what they want to achieve and how they're being scented to act, right? So, you know, they they may be incented if it's if it's a brand new asset and you have that initial uh, incentive, you know, they may be interested in low, you know, optimizing the life cycle cost across the entire life cycle. Or as you know, I've certainly seen there are organizations where, no, no, the people making the decisions, you know, early in the project in the in the creation phase, they are much more incented on the capital price, right? So you have that challenge. So you can show that okay, it would, it might pay uh, to spend a little bit more upfront to minimize the, you know, the, the longer term costs, but that may or may not go. And that gets us to the second point, and that's the constraints, right? So because you're using some math and some probabilistic methods here, you know, the organization will have its constraints, but very often those constraints you know, um, look, they, they come from very often, you know, a financial background. You know, the organization can only f- afford a certain amount of, of capital, for example, right? And, and you know, that, that amount gets determined on, determined on a variety of different bases. But, you know, one of the things that we can do with these methods is actually challenge some of the constraints, we can actually solve um, for what is the best constraint. And, um, you know, that can help your leaders challenge their own constraints, which is 
tremendously helpful, right? Because, you know, an organization doesn't work without constraints, but, you know, I'll, I'll use the word arbitrary. It's not really fair because none of these are truly arbitrary. But from an assets perspective, the fact that the organization can only afford to spend this much of capital is arbitrary. It doesn't care. Right. It just wants what's best for that asset. So, you know, you can use the the results to kind of show, um, you know, if you are able to bump up your your perceived cons- constraint a little bit, here's how much value is on the table or that you could get. Or otherwise, if you keep the constraint the way it is here, much here's how much value you're giving up which can influence the leader to maybe make some changes on that constraint or not, right? But at least at least you understand, you know, what you're gaining or what you're losing uh, based on the decisions. And, you know, anytime you can prove that you're giving up value, well, you know you're not optimal, right? So, um, you know, and, you know, operational excellence is a really high bar and there's not a lot of room for compromise on excellence. So, you know, the nice thing about these methods that I'm promoting here is that it can show you um, how far from optimal you are, which is an indication of how much you're giving up um, on excellence. Now, that may or may not be meaningful to the organization and its leaders, but it is to me. Yes, absolutely. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about life cycle costing analysis, but what really makes the biggest difference in being successful with it? Is it that managing up? Is it using probabilistic versus single point estimates? You know, what is that thing that really makes a big difference in being successful with it? Hmm. I would, I would say, you know, the fact that you're going to choose, hopefully, to use, you know, quantitative methods and tools um, is probably the biggest thing that can help you make better decisions. The, the other piece is that, you know, this, this is only one tiny piece of your overall asset management system and, and framework. And if you work in or industrial organizations, you know, I would call it an operational management system. And, you know, if you can combine this practice with other similar practices, um, you know, some of which might be quantitative, others maybe not. Um, but my point is that, you know, this is really an integrated system. So if you can improve this practice and other practices at the same time, then look, you can really move the dial on your on your you know cost of service uh, while maintaining and proving to yourself that you're you know managing your risk um, you know to what the organization. Um, wants, right? So, you know, all these little things kind of add up. And you, if you apply this practice across your whole enterprise, I mean, you've got thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of assets. If you're doing this on a consistent basis, um, you know, all these things add up to add significant value uh, over time. I guess the the other way to look at that is you've, if you don't do this, how much value are you leaving on your ta- on the table? Um, I guess 
you know, the other thing that, you know, maybe I should have said when you asked the question of when do you do this, you know, these practices, the life cycle cost analysis should be an important part of your medium or long-term uh, business planning process. So whether that's done annually or once every three years, you know, it depends on the organization. But, you know, the, that's the point in time where you should be making decisions, you know, based on some good you know, um, good practice that we're talking about here. But, you know, if, if I, in an ideal world, just before you enter into your business, your medium or long range business um, process, let's say you do it once a year, you know, ideally you want most of your critical assets to have their life cycle, life cycle analysis updated um, by that time. Now that might take some time to actually you know, do all of these using these methods. It actually doesn't take as as long as as you might think because you know what I've certainly seen in my experience, we, we do this type of stuff already in our long range planning. But instead of doing these probabilistic methods, we use single point estimates and ranges, and we allow you know buckets of spend. You know, fifty thousand dollars for this type of scope, and you know, hundred thousand dollars for this type of capital, and you know really what we're trying to do, what I'm saying is you're already doing this. You're already spending time and effort, um, you know, to do this, to do this best practice may not even take more, um, uh, time and effort. In fact, you know, there's been some research to suggest that overall, you know, um, this can reduce the time and effort to do that. And it also, um, saves you from making decisions kind of on the fly outside of business process, um, business planning processes, which for me is, is very important because then you're not reacting and, and doing things under making decisions, not just under uncertainty and complexity, but also under duress. So the best time to make these decisions is when you can see all of the recommendations and projects and, and see how it's all stacking up against, you know, whatever constraints you have and, you know, work with it, kind of all the individual pieces together as a whole, you can make much better decisions uh, with that in hand. So it's, 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 it's well worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about, this life cycle costing. What is the one action you really want our listeners to take away from everything we've talked about so far today? What's the one thing you want them to do differently? Think about differently? Um, what do you What do you want them to apply from what they've learned today so far? I guess if I could reduce this to to one statement, um, it would be to become comfortable working under conditions of uncertainty, right? And, you know, one of the things I learned from, from Douglas Hubbard, and I'm actually taking some of his training right now, I've become a bit of a, bit of a disciple of his because he's, he's, he promotes these types of methods. Um, but, you know, one of the things that he said at a conference I was at years ago is, well, two statements I'll, I'll say he said. He said, the first is the most important decision you will make is how you will make your decisions. And, and that's what we're talking about with life cycle cost analysis. But, you know, there's another statement that he made that's a bit more specific to this practice. The second thing that uh, Doug Hubbard said, um, and a bit more relevant to life cycle cost analysis, is he said the proper way to express an uncertainty is 
the answer, which is very often what we do in, you know, our single point estimates. That's how we're used to, you know, doing and thinking because we're wired to think deterministically, right? So there's your answer, but just as important as your answer is an expression of your uncertainty around that answer. So, you know, my message here is let's let's understand the uncertainty around what we're doing and what we're do, do, dealing with because it is just as important in terms of making good decisions or better decisions than the answer itself. And I think that's for me what kind of turned my mind into believing that, you know, probabilistic methods are superior because, you know, whereas single point estimates going into a model, you know, whether it's just cash flow, you know, net present value calculation or whatever, you know, yeah, you can get an answer. Um, but if there's a bunch of uncertainties around all the inputs to that, that you're really not factoring in, I mean, you don't know where that answer fits within all the range of possibilities. And it turns out that, you know, to understand and take a position on all of those uncertainties can help you make more consistent decisions for those people who've been calibrated to do it. And for those who are competent to use those tools. So, you know, it's been proven to me that, you know, with a little bit more effort, um, a modest investment in people's competencies and a very modest uh, investment in tools, you know, you can make much better decisions. So, again, just to emphasize, the one thing I would do is try to quantify your uncertainty. And, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a very qualitative example of this. So, you know, back in the day I was in engineering and, you know, I had a boss that, you know, the engineers didn't like him because they they were always challenged by him, um, and and you know they felt that it was a bit of a threat on their their subject matter expertise. You know what they would do is you know they would hold all their data and information very close to the vest, and then they would give recommendations on what work and projects we should do, and you know inevitably this 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 um, engineering leader would challenge them. And the way he went about it, I mean, he was a bit of a jerk about it. But, you know, one day, and I didn't like him all that much either for that same reason, because he, he did the same to me, right? Um, so one day, he was he was uh, challenging one of my colleagues. And it occurred to me, I had, I had this eureka moment where, okay, yeah, he was challenging, but all he was really trying to do was to understand the subject, subject matter expert's uncertainty around the recommendation he was giving, right? And once I realized that, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, oh, I see what he's doing. He wants to know how uncertain, you know, this this engineer is about the answer. And he didn't see the data and everything. But, you know, again, that was another... That was another um, point in my life, an inflection point in my career, where I realized that, no, it's not just about the recommendations, right? Um, because, you know, evidence shows that subject matter expertise, you know, if they, if, you know, people make recommendations and they're right some a lot of the time, but not all the time. And using these methods, the practitioners can be right, 
about their inputs into these models and the decision makers can be right more often about what um, decisions ultimately get get made here so you know ag- again that's just a bit of a short story and a qualitative one but you know it's taken me a long time to change my mind about you know these methods and life cycle cost analysis and um, you know the broader asset investment planning but I'm I'm very much on board for um, you know, quantitative techniques. And, you know, I've erased um, almost all excuses on why you wouldn't want to do that. I mean, that's what we're there for as practitioners um, and leaders is to make, you know, good decisions on behalf of the organization. And, you know, because this is part of our day job to do that, um, I think it, you know, there's lots of value to be won and lost. And it, it, it pays, this is one of those areas, as I said to begin, it pays to be, um, you know, use a best practice in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Those best practices are crucial. Like you said, we can't have that give on excellence. We got to strive for it. And best practices are one of the ways we get there. Now, Paul, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about life cycle costing today. But before we go, where can people find out more about you, CEO asset management, all those other great things that you have going on? Well, first and foremost, you can find me on um, LinkedIn is probably where I spend a good chunk of my time. Um, My website, uh, CO Asset Management, uh, sorry, COAM.com. So that's S-C-I-O-A-M.com. And I've just released a new website that uh, I'm pretty happy with. So please check that out. Um, also I've been writing some articles on medium.com and I have a blog on my website and of course I publish all that, um, to, to, uh, LinkedIn. And so that plus, you know, PMAC, I'm very active with PMAC, um, you know, um, hosting some, some events online for that. So, um, please check out PMAC as well. Um, you can find me all over, please seek me out. Excellent. I will make sure to put links to all of those in the show notes as well as some of the other things you mentioned, like the asset management landscape by the Global Forum on Maintenance and Asset Management. Um, the book you mentioned, Risk-Based Methods for Equipment Life Management, you know, a couple of those other things as well. So, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about life cycle costing. It's an important thing. It's a thing we need to do to take our game to the next level. So I truly appreciate it. Thanks for your time, James. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.